Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is supporting the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Charity. Please listen to the end of the show for my commentary and an interview with Deputy Editor Patrick Jenkins explaining the new charity. But first, let me tell you about our sponsor. I asked Sentio to sponsor this podcast because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than other platforms. Third, it has features I've never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund, or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com, S-E-N-T-I-E-O, forward slash BTBS for Behind the Balance Sheet for more details. I think the overlap between venture capital and quoted stocks is a really interesting one, which we're going to try to explore in this podcast. More and more IPOs from the tech sector more and more quoted stocks are subject to disruption. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the top hedge fund managers in the UK who has now turned his hand to venture capital. Until January 2019, Stuart Roden was chairman of Lansdowne Partners, having previously co-managed with Peter Davis the developed markets funds since their inception in 2001, although he stopped managing money in 2016. Stuart started his career in the city in 1984, joining S.G. Warburg & Co. He worked at McKinsey, then at Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. Stuart's a director of the LSE, from which he received a first-class honours degree in economics. He's non-executive chairman of multiple charity and investing bodies. Stuart's married with four children. How he finds the time to do all this, who knows, and he lives in London. I've known Stuart for over 25 years, but I learned more in this hour about his philosophy than I had done previously. Stuart's got that winning combination of a razor-sharp intellect, a love of markets, a wealth of experience, and a nose for a winning idea. Nobody who knows Stuart is in the least surprised by his phenomenal success. In this interview, we'll hear how he was tempted to fire a client, the four or perhaps five key factors to run a successful fund, 
why you're either an analyst or a portfolio manager, how handwriting can reveal whether you will be a good employee, and how he and Peter Davis ran a highly successful $10 billion hedge fund. I know you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. So Stuart Roden, welcome to the podcast. Tell me, what brought you into investment management? Was it by design? You weren't one of these people that were doing a paper round and investing your savings in the stock market when you were age 12, were you? Or was it serendipitous or was it planned? It was a combination of things, actually. So I think the, the reason like I got into investing was probably because of my love of gambling, actually, I have to say. So I, I used to uh, do two things. I used to play poker a lot as a kid, certainly through school and into university. And at the age of 15, used to spend my rather shamelessly summer holidays on the racetrack um, or in bookmakers. So I, 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 I like gambling. I liked um, risk. And I did. I started. But I think the first share I bought was when I was, I think, 13. It was Acorn, which was one of the early computer makers for the BBC, um, and became very interested in it and kind of found it exciting and fast moving. And so I guess from a pretty early age, I knew I'd go into some form of risk-taking um, career. wasn't sure it would be investment at the time. I didn't know much about it. But I certainly was attracted to the excitement and moving fast-moving world in which one was operating. In fact, I even spent Wednesday night at Wembley Dog Track. So that was always a great outing. <laughs> do you still go to the dogs? I don't go to dogs. I go racing. <laughs> I don't go to the dogs. <laughs> I realised that was a bit of a mugs game. <laughs> I guess there'll be a lot of uh, people in America listening to this. No wonder about greyhound racing. I don't know even know if they have it in, in in the States. I don't know. But you you started at McKinsey's, right? You didn't? No, I didn't. No, I started as a graduate trainee at a bank, Warburg Bank, and then spent the first year of that. You're meant to do rotations, but, but spent, spent the first year uh, in investment management division and, and never left it. So I, I didn't do this. You're, you're meant to do kind of a, a year in one place and a year in another. And I, I didn't leave it. And I went to McKinsey later on, actually, kind of six years into uh, the city career and went there for four years and then back um, and was there ever since. What, what made you leave Warburg's and go to McKinsey? Uh, it's a combination of things, actually. I think it was a, a, a kind of a lot, lots, lots of things were happening at the same time. But I think in terms of pro- the professional move, it would have been because one was always thought one was slightly outside, knowing ha- how companies operated, and uh, you know, it was always looking at public information and perhaps not quite knowing what was going on inside uh, kind of the CEO's mind or inside the industry at a level that uh, you could get access to. So I just thought it'd be a useful tool a useful addition of skills uh, to help to help i think i always knew i'd go back and become an investor frankly uh, i didn't quite know how or when but even when i joined mckinsey i knew that wouldn't be my life was it interesting at mckinsey's i mean did it give you an edge do you think when you went back into fund management uh, it's a great question uh maybe at the margin oh, i really enjoyed it i really really enjoyed my time then loved working with the people and connecting it cer- it certainly helped uh, and this again, this is very personal. It certainly helped uh, my communication uh, skills um, and the ability to synthesize information, which I think is maybe not necessarily that useful day to day in the job, you know, in fund management. 
picking shares, but it's, it's very useful when it comes to all the communication, which is so, so important. It's funny, isn't it? Because some of the best investors are some of the poorest communicators. Yeah. It's the wiring. It's slightly, your wiring has to be a particular way to be successful as an investor. And it makes, sometimes makes you a bit of a, makes it more difficult to communicate. I've seen a number, I've seen that number of, of, of people, really successful, successful investors. I remember, I don't know if you remember, we had lunch probably 10 years ago at a very posh investors conference. And you, your then partner, Pete Davis, and Neil Ferguson, who'd just written a book, the biography of Sigmund Warburg. Yes. And you were telling him about the handwriting test. T- yes. Tell us about the handwriting test. Well, that, that was very much a Warburg, uh, a Warburg thing, that whenever you interviewed for a job, they would, they'd ask for a handwritten note. Um, and it was well known that that was sent off to um, a graphologist who was Sigmund Warburg's uh, colleague from well, it was, I guess now 50, 60 years ago, to be analysed. And whenever we um, had a discussion about a prospective hire, the result of that interview, uh, the, inter- the interview would be one part, and then there would be this issue about um, what did the graphologist say? And um, so it was really, really listened to. It wasn't just a kind of an extra thrown in, and people were not given jobs if something very negative came up, for sure. And I was in those meetings where people, and of course what happened, which is, as you would expect, is people would hear the graphology and say, oh, I always thought that might be the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it's kind of became kind of self-fulfilling in some ways. Um, but back to the communication point, which I think is a really important one. And certainly when Pete and I um, started together, one of the things that we were very keen to do was to make uh, the written communication, uh, kind of an important part of the delivery to clients. Uh, and there are lots of things we can talk about later about the investment side, but I think being transparent, being open, and I would say trying to make sure the clients are never surprised. So although that you'll go through bad periods, if you've explained what you're doing at any one time and what you're thinking and how the portfolio is positioned and something happens in the world that clearly would be negative for the fund, a client having read your previous letters would be aware of that it wouldn't be a shock or a surprise so you're absolutely right i think a lot of people in our profession find it quite hard to communicate or aren't the great communicators on a one-to-one basis um but sometimes they can write extremely well and you know we think communication is a key part of what makes a good relationship between the fund manager and the client and, and the client um of the firm you know, that's a fantastic point. And of course, your letters have been amazing over the years. But just going back to the handwriting, it's quite interesting because I remember Stuart Newton used to do the same thing. Because Stuart Newton of Newton Investment Management, when you went for an interview, because he, he, uh, he offered me a job. And at the time, I, just, I was enjoying the sell side and I wasn't sure about going to buy side. Mistake on my part. And he said that one of the things that they did was you went through a cycle psychosymmetric test because his theory was that some people were better suited to be analysts mm. and some people were better suited to be portfolio managers. And the, the idea of that test was to try and fit people into those two buckets. I mean, was this something that you used later in your career? Did you ever rely on external help when assessing a new recruit? No, no, we didn't. Uh, actually, certainly not when, when I, when I was there. Um, but I, th- I think the distinction that Stuart's talking about there is, is absolutely right. And um, 
when so at Lansdowne, clearly when I was running the fund for over 17, 18 years, our job there was to recruit um, analysts. Um, but as part of later on, when I kind of took over running the firm and tried to recruit uh, new product managers, they had to be fund managers. And the distinction is very real and very important. And there are many, many brilliant analysts, uh, brilliant analysts who would be hopeless uh, fund managers. And I guess the, and there are lots of reasons why there are, that distinction exists, but I think the, uh, a, lot, a lot of analysts find it, not just in fund management or, or in our world, but the concept of a, an, an analyst would be always wanting to find the final answer and having a very clear yes or no. And of course, when you're in the fund management role, uh, you never get that certainty. And part of the skill, I think, of a great fund manager is understanding what's not known and taking on a position in spite of that, you know, and taking on the risk and uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, and if you, you know, if you're not comfortable with that, it can be a really very difficult job, and you'll always kind of want that bit more information or want the certainty. And of course, even if you get it, it might be too late by then. So I think I think there is a different character. Um, and you can you can generally gauge that from conversation and what they've done before. What sort of signals would I give off as to whether I was a good analyst or a good PM? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think I think a good analyst is actually easier to um, interview for because you give them case studies and you can go through examples of uh, companies or industries, uh, give them examples. Uh, of a particularly difficult company that you've looked at and and, and see that's that's what we used to do for our analysts. I think when it comes to fund manager, um, it's 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 kind of a, uh, it's an attitude where they've taken risks before. How they think about how they think about the world. Uh, it, it's it, it's probably the case, and this is uh, certainly was the case for most people that they went through the route of working for a fund manager before they knew whether they wanted the job or not. Um, it's very rare that you would take on somebody. I can't think of an instance where somebody would come in totally cold and say, I want to be a fund manager, please can I have a job without having done something similar before. It, it's very rare indeed. And again, I can't make a convincing case this is the truth, but where that has happened, and there are some cases, I'm not sure it's ended up very well. So people might have very good skills in a certain area, but when it comes to actually being in the seat, it's very, very different. And there's you know lots of things that you can't prepare for. So it's much harder to know whether someone will be a good fund manager than a good analyst. And I think obviously over time, you know, track record tells you something, but even that has to be carefully interrogated. But you'd want to work with someone, I think, before you would be willing to say they could be a great fund manager. I mean, I was remembered we had uh, a coffee and you very kindly gave me some advice when I was writing my book. And as I recall, you attributed your success in markets to being able to identify change, change happening in the world and its impact on the outlook for companies. Is that, I mean, is that one of the key things that made you so successful or were there other things that you that you did that you think distinguished you and, and enabled you to beat the averages? Well, okay. So if I, if I could take a step back, because, you know, we kind of used to get asked this question when pitching for new business, and it's kind of quite a difficult one to answer without sounding uh, kind of immodest. But but well, I, I used to kind of break it down into probably four distinct areas. And, uh, and I'll come back to something at the, the end about kind of partnership and why 
in my case, I think it worked incredibly well having having Peter Davis as a partner for so long running the fund. So I, th- I think I think that the four things there's probably a fifth which we touched on before, but the, the four the four key blocks I think of being and here I'm talking about running a successful fund uh, rather than just a individual individual stock picker. So I think I think the four things would go into these into these buckets. What what one is idea generation? Where do you get your ideas from? And again, no easy answer to that, but I think it's having a curiosity of mind that means you're always consuming information uh, from all different sources. There's no doubt that uh, when we started, our access to new information sources did distinguish us. Uh, we used to pay for it. I think we were the very, very first firm, certainly in Europe, to actually pay for external sources of of data, of information. We did our own um, interview panels. So I, th- I think just being uh, creative in how you get information uh, is a starting point. And from that, ideas come. And, you know, if you're smart and you're talking to smart people, uh, you'll find lots and lots and lots of ideas. Uh, then the second thing, of course, is to know which of those ones to follow. So there's kind of kind of filtering system. And then you have to do very good analysis uh, on those companies. And it is financial analysis uh, at its core. Definitely not one of my strengths, but um, Pete and the rest of the team were exceptionally good at that. And there were times also, as you know, Stephen, that we'd ask other people to look at something if we thought it was complicated, um, you know, sets of account or acquisition. You know, we, we, we would outsource that if, if we needed to. So very strong uh, a- analysis. Um, for me also, the industry. So we were, although I wouldn't say that everything we did was in this bucket, but there's very strong sense of capital cycles uh, going through what we believed would be an attractive investment. Uh, where capital has been starved uh, and there were delays in putting new uh, supply up, working that out through to demand and what what the kind of next two or three years might look like. I think that's a lot of what we did. What we did and actually, that was true of the mining and some of the UK shares we look, looked at. And you know, you'd argue that on the short side, when you were looking at the increased supply of somebody like an Amazon was bringing to sales that's going to lead to certain pricing pressures which happen and we, we were I think pretty early on to the negative impacts of um, e-commerce uh, way, way before it was recognized by the market so they're, they're, the, they're the first two things I think you've got to have really interesting ideas uh, lots of joining dots lots of seeing patterns thinking about capital cycles and then doing some extremely strong analytical work uh, on the company asking all sorts of uh, questions, forensic questions, but also working out you know, classic questions of uh, operational leverage, both up and down, uh, cost, acquisition opportunities, and so on and so forth. And, and then the third part is um, how you put those positions, in our case it was a hedge fund, but before that long only, into a portfolio that makes sense. Uh, and that's kind of not a trivial matter um, because you could just take all your good ideas on the long side, all your good ideas on the short side, and say this this is our best of ideas. Um, you know, let's let's see what happens. That's definitely what not what we did. We were very explicit about what return profile we were looking for, which included um, volatility or, or drawdowns. In other words, uh, what what was acceptable. So that, in a sense, determines what the portfolio looks like in terms of exposure to um, individual companies, exposure to individual um, sectors, and exposure to overall macro themes. And the key in all of that, uh, Stephen, was to 
Uh, and again, I think it's something uh, I think we can say immodestly that Pete and I did you know, when we when we launched the fund, which I wouldn't say it was earth shattering, but it was certainly not commonplace at the time, was to make sure that we weren't taking risks that we didn't know about. So we used to call those, we want to avoid taking uh, hi hidden risks. And the way uh, that we did that was to run the whole portfolio through different factors and all those different analytical um, external events that could happen um, and uh, certainly wanted to happen in the past. And what would that look like for the fund? And so we were kind of feeling very pleased with ourselves that we'd done that and it was very working quite well. And then, of course, we had 9-11 kind of a couple of months into us running the fund. So you always know there's going to be something you haven't thought about. Um, that was one of the first things that happened to us that wasn't uh, on the cards. Um, but, 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 but making sure, and I, I learned this lesson from my early days at Mercury where uh, people were performing very well, but it turned out that they had one, basically one theme or risk running through the whole fund. And that happened to go wrong. Uh, and the whole portfolio unwound. Everything was connected. So, you could, I mean, the classic example would be um, property. If you're exposed to property and exposed to banks and there's a property collapse, you're going to get hit twice. So th that is something we spent a lot of time on, uh, kind of managing risks and how things were interrelated and would work in different scenarios um, that took place. Um, and then the final uh, block of the four, I would say, is, is um, kind of active monitoring. So assume you've done the first bit and the second bit and you've got your portfolio. It's really important that you look at that as best you can afresh every week. Um, it's very easy to become not kind of lazy, but, but slightly um, complacent about positions. And one of the things that um, we used to say a lot is be very careful of thesis creep. So uh, you've got lots of positions on. You have reasons why you've got those positions on. And then when something doesn't quite work, you kind of invent another reason why you should keep the position on. And um, that's incredibly dangerous. So we were, we were uh, the, the term that gets used now, I don't think it was, I don't think P&I or the team ever used it, was re-underwriting positions. That you want people to re-underwrite their positions, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a constant basis and not have the bias of being linked to what price you paid or any other emotional thing that you might have. And one of the most common ones I think is, um, you know, you can get too close to management for sure. And so what we used to say is we know there are biases. We know we're humans. We have them. Uh, all you can do is guard against them and beware of them. So, you know, constant vigilation on the portfolio to keep it dynamic and to keep it fresh. That'd be the fourth block. And the fifth one we, we, we spoke about before, which was communication. Uh, incredibly important to communicate to your clients and work on the principle that Nobody likes a surprise, particularly a bad surprise. Um, and uh, you know, as long as you as long as you do that, uh, I think you're often forgiven. I think what clients don't forgive you for is producing kind of returns which uh, are kind of unexpected, obviously poor and unexpected. When they're good and unexpected, they kind of they never say anything, but um, which is completely illogical because it means you were probably taking too much risk one way or another. It just happened to work out in that case. Uh, but but, make, but make, make, making sure that you're true to your word, that you're delivering within your risk parameters um, and what, what the expectations are. And so we used to say, for example, that we didn't want to have uh, a drawdown of more than 4% in a month or 5% over three months. 
didn't mean we would never have it, but that was the kind of expectation we set. That's um, very challenging um, because you don't know what's going what's to happen. And, um, but I, I, I suppose setting expectations is a good idea. Listen, you and Pete worked together for nearly 25 years, and I was scratching my head because I can't think of another investment duel that has been as enduring and as successful other than Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, perhaps. But pretty good example. But when you look, I mean, it's quite an interesting thing. So I was thinking about, well, who's what partnerships have there been in business? And you get a lot of family partnerships, you know, the Koch brothers or the Barclay brothers, um, obviously used to be a very successful family partnerships, lots of father and son pairings. And in business, there used to be a lot of duels, um, Procter and Gamble, Rolls Royce, Wells Fargo, Hewlett Packard, Anheuser-Busch. I mean, there's a huge long list. But when you look today, there's far fewer, you know, there's Ben and Jerry's ice cream. There's Sergey Bin and uh, Larry Page. Google. But it's not a it's not a common thing. What what was it about the chemistry between you and Pete? I mean, is it complementary skills, different psychological? Approach? I mean, what what made it so successful? Because in investment management, these partnerships tend not to endure for that long. You know, the one that's been very was very successful was John Armitage and William Bollinger, but Bollinger retired relatively early on and Armitage has been you know had an amazing performance on his own Chris Hone Patrick DeGorse I mean DeGorse left and set up yeah. set up yeah. on his own what what was it and I mean maybe you don't know I mean uh, maybe an unfair question no I think I think it's a very good question um I can have a go at answering I don't think we'll, we'll know we'll know for sure so I think I, th- I think I think there are kind of a few contributing factors if first of all we were kind of di- different ages which I think is quite important so there was there was never a you know, it wasn't a competitive thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I was older and had done certain things. Pete hadn't done. Pete was obviously, you know, br- br- you know, a, a brilliant uh, mind when he started fund management, but didn't have fund management experience. So I think there was a kind of a clear complementary skills. There was huge respect, even though we had different skills. Um, and I think without that the basis of respect for each other um, for what the other person thinks, nothing is going to work. And there was never a sense that, you know, one of us was vying as you would do in a large company potentially to get to the top of a pile. So I, I think, you know, that we, we came with different skill sets. And I guess what's interesting to ask is, you know, what were those those differences? And I think I think anybody who knows the both of us would not find it hard to say something like, uh, you know, Pete's kind of optimistic and very, very, uh, you know, confident, Stuart's much more uh, uh, neurotic and uh, uh, cautious, always looking at the downside. So that's a really interesting combination because, you know, to be a great farm manager, you have to have both confidence and humility, and, and it's a very rare, a very rare mix. Uh, you, if you don't have humility, you're going to get it at some stage because the market's going to make you humble. It just, it just does that. Um, yes. And um, if you don't have enough confidence, you may never take the position. That you need to take and and work through it, and and, and maybe uh, you know it's a proposition. So I, I can't prove it, but may, maybe it's very hard for one person to hold both those things. Yeah, um, maybe it's incredibly difficult, and so that you know balancing uh, was probably a very very good thing, and um, you know it allows you to qu- question in a kind of safe and respectful manner. 
rather than in a point scoring manner, uh, which kind of happens in large firms. You're, you're, you're not trying to win points in a debate. You're trying to do what you think is the best thing for clients. Um, and having two people looking at it kind of from really quite different angles, temperamentally different angles, I think was it was incredibly valuable. Um, and obviously, you've got to get on with the person. So you've got to respect them. You've got to like them. You've got to have shared values. Um, and you know, I'm not going to say we never disagreed on things. We, we clearly uh, did. Um, not many times. I could actually count them on. I can literally count them on one hand. But we never, ever disagreed on anything where there was a moral issue about what to do, either in the team or in the firm or with man or, or, or with management of information. Never, ever had any, ever had a disagreement, but always came to the same answer. And, and you do get these questions uh, about whether you can, whether you can't do something, whether something should be on the restricted list, are you allowed to deal in something, are you not, how you treat staff, um, you know, what the firm wants to stand for. Never, ever ever had a, a difference of view on that. And I think that's really important, really, really important. So I guess I'm you know, summarizing, I'd say lots of mutual respect, lots of shared values, different complementary skill set, and, 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 it, and it worked. Obviously, it worked. I mean, I, I, re- I remember coming to present to you guys when I was on the south side, and you would always be sort of set, sat off to the side, not saying much. And Pete would have a barrage of questions. And then you would just sort of fire the, the bullet at the, you know, at close to the end and um, ask this, well, are we really looking at the right thing? I remember a couple, I can't remember the exact instances. I remember a couple of times that that happened. Um, but when you disagreed, I mean, what, what would, be the end result. I mean, if you had diametrically opposite views in the stock, you just wouldn't do. So I think, I think, I think when it was working best, we kind of had a veto. We had a veto policy, uh, which was that if, if either of us, you know, at the beginning, definitely didn't want to do something, particularly if it was to do with the personality or something we felt uncomfortable about the company or its management team, we just wouldn't do it. Uh, and that that was uh, that, that was just a fact. We wouldn't do it. Uh, and then basically the way you reflect differences of opinion are in the weighting of the company. So where we were both very uh, pro something, and it was often a theme actually at the time, uh, rather than a company, we would go to our maximum kind of risk exposure, which would be carefully worked out relative to other positions in the portfolio. Where it was something that, uh, for example, Pete had a, had a view on, I was less sure, we would go in to a kind of a half position and then try and either build it up or not build it up depending on kind of the new the new evidence or you know getting clarification on certain issues so so, so the, i said the, the kind of how much of the position of the company on the long or short side you have in the portfolio expresses your confidence and so you go from you know having nothing to a smaller position to a maximum position and then the job is to persuade the other person why you think you're right in a, in, a, in a healthy manner. Was there any sort of particular sectors or geographies that you particularly liked that you found that you consistently made money and that you were attracted back to? Uh, I, th- I think mining was one that we really got to understand in the first capital cycle. You know, when you get asked a question, are you bottom up or top down? The answer is we were both. And you'd have this view going back. It's just a good example of, you know, when new Chinese demand was very strong. 
we knew supply was constrained. We knew that the supply numbers in the marketplace kind of never got met. There's always delays for kind of good reasons or not good reasons, but but supply never quite met uh, the the target. And then that's your kind of your overall thesis. You then meet six, seven, eight companies. They all basically tell you the same thing. And then your job is to pick the ones which are kind of in that case on the lowest cost curve or you think the ones that can do interesting M&A deals. Um, and therefore, you had both those things coming together, and that and then that led to maximum position. So I think mining, mining, mining was one. Uh, building infrastructure was another one we're very strong on. Pete was very strong on financials, obviously banks um, from what way back at Mercury days. Uh, the areas that we rarely invested in, perhaps are the other way around, um, were a retail we were we were pretty good at, both long and short. Um, actually, we found retail very easy to analyze. Uh, airlines, uh, which was something you know a bit about, um, we, we uh, uh, made, made some very good investments in, in, in those sectors. And as you can see, they're all you know capital-heavy um, air, air, areas of the market. The, the areas that we generally didn't do very much in were um, uh, pharmaceuticals. We kind of came to the conclusion after quite a long time that we weren't sure we could the, the listed public companies that that is that we could really add value you'd have all these kind of professionals come in doctors and uh, people who from broking firms or from non-broking firms who claim they knew about what's going to happen to a certain drug and you kind of realized that nobody quite knew and you realized that management didn't know themselves so um, not, not in a bad way because how, how could they so a farm big farmer we didn't do very much of and uh bigger oil as well was something we never really had uh, very big positions in utilities was something we were we were big in at, well, one, uh, at one stage, but I think they're, they're, the, they're the two big sectors where we had very limited exposure, long or short, over over kind of twenty years. It was interesting. The airlines, of course, Pete um, started at Mercury doing the airlines. When, that's right. That's right. And it was really, I, I felt quite uh, bemused. I remember going to a meeting with them and. He'd been, I don't know, he'd been there less than a month and he knew more about the airlines than I did. And I'd been doing, I thought, well, how does that work? And uh, I realized quite quickly that he was pretty smart. But issues like the airlines and mining, there's quite a big macro influence. So just talk about, talk about the, the top down versus the bottom up. I mean, you're quite big in the top down stuff, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, so, so basically, it's it's having a it's having a view, not necessarily, kind of, you know, the macro GDP numbers, but kind of within sectors, where you think money is going to be spent. So, for example, I don't think it takes a genius, and my own personal portfolio now uh, is very tilted towards kind of infrastructure uh, infrastructure spend. It, it's kind of pretty clear that in this country in America, that's where governments are going to spend money and kind of. They've said it. Uh, if you look at the Chinese five-year plan, they tell you—they literally tell you where the money is going to be spent. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's not a secret. I mean, so I think you have to start start there as a starting point. Um, but then, of course, if you look at airlines, the actual the bull case on airlines was not a demand one; it was the um, shrinking number of players in the sector, and it got to the stage where. Certainly, when I last saw it, and I'll be well out of touch, but the kind of the top five had 80% of the sector, whereas that number kind of 10 years ago was 50%. So the idea that obviously what's happened with COVID and 
the pandemic uh, has upset all those numbers. But you know, the idea was a very strong one that you'd get better pricing power as you had a much more concentrated market. I would say, Stephen, for anyone listening who, who happens to be an analyst in a sector who then goes on to run money, uh, beware of what, what, what I want to call the sector curse. Um, and <laughs> the sector curse goes along the lines that when I go back to my old firm, uh, Mercury Asset Management, we all had funds uh, where you had some leeway, but you had sector analysts with their uh, specific sectors they had to cover from a research point of view. And if ever you looked at the fund of all these different people, you could tell which sector they covered because they always, always will fill up in that sector or overweight. So um, because you think you know it best, so you'll think you can always have most most exposure to it. But of course, it might be the worst sector in the world. So uh, um, yeah, just because you know something well, it doesn't mean yeah, that you should have a lot of exposure to it. It's quite quite funny because um, I realized that I couldn't have a, as impartial a view of my own sector when I went to the buy side. And um, if I looked, I, I never tracked the performance of the, of the different um, stocks, but I would bet money that transport would have been my worst. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, because, yeah, it's exactly that. You're much less impartial and you th- it's slightly dangerous because you think you know and you're, you're not as um, able to put it in the context of the wider market. So um, I certainly did better with things that I was completely new to it's obviously you're attract. I think you're attracted to it because it's easier. It's less work. Uh, yeah, it's less work, and you, and you know it, right? Yeah, of course. Um, it doesn't always work. I remember trying to persuade one of my colleagues at one fund that they shouldn't invest in a particular transport stock. They'd asked me. Um, I'd been for breakfast with the Goldman Sachs analyst, and he'd recommended this stock, and I said I wouldn't touch that with a barge pole. And they, this particular guy thought that the Goldman's analysts were brilliant. I don't, I never understood why. And, um, he went out and bought it and, you know, ended up losing money. And they kind of said, well, you told me that. And I said, no, I told you not to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> very uh, typically, typically funny. So listen, um, you're now doing different things, including venture. And one of the hmm. things that we're quite interested in is, you know, where venture meets quoted companies because i think there's you know, it's an increasing part of the market hmm. so i was looking at a, a big uh, hedge funds 13f holdings and about 40 percent of the value was in stocks that were less than 10 years old or less than 15 years old and had come to the market from venture and i was just i was just wondering you know judging management i think is incredibly difficult and it, it's incredibly difficult when you're looking at quoted stocks because the guy that's got to the top of a Fortune 500 company, he's good at sales and he's good at selling himself and he's good at persuading you hmm. that what he's saying is true. In venture, it's a much more important component of the total. So tell me, how do you, how do, you do that? And are there any transferable skills from quoted to venture? Or? It's, a great, it's, a, it's a tremendous question. I, I, I mean, at one level, at one level, there are very few, frankly. Uh, and if you're talking about venture, venture, as in, and, and, the, and the one that I'm most involved in, uh, which is one we started three years ago uh, in Israel, actually, um, which is literally backing seed companies. So two, three people in a room with an idea and with big brains. Um, 
you know, all the kind of stuff that we would have done, which is scope market size, do forecasts. Um, it's just, it, it's not, it's just not that relevant. And as you said, you're taking a huge, huge gamble uh, on on the people. Um, so I think common sense and some form of framework as to, yeah. and the question I ask now, which I guess it took me a while to ask, and I, and I don't do the day-to-day work, um, is you know, if, if, if this does work, how big, how big can it be? Because the, uh, it's most likely not to work. And that's kind of the, rule, the rules of venture investing. It's most likely that things don't work. And therefore, the ones that do work, you know, it's that classic thing, have to be able to return two or three times the fund. And therefore, scoping how big something could be uh, does become important. And it becomes important for the reason that, you know, if you think about the way venture works, you invest at, say, $10 million. The next person invests at 40 The guy who pays 40 while it's still early stage, wants to make sure it's worth 200 the guy that's 200 needs to make sure it's worth 400 and so on. So uh, at one level, you have to believe that these venture companies you're investing in can be worth five, $600 million. Otherwise, you really shouldn't make the investment on day one. And so one of the things that we've, it's not quite answering your question, but I think we've learned uh, is that yeah, investing in a company that's got a market uh, initial value of five to $10 million that you think could be worth 60 or 70 is one you'd pass on, uh, frankly. Uh, so the market opportunity bit, I, I think, is uh, obviously I assume they execute and they're the only player and they're the winner and all the rest of it. But that becomes, I think, a much more important question for an early stage investor um, than it necessarily does for kind of public companies. And as you say, the, the the CEO team at the beginning often, that one to our discussion before, the, the, our most successful investment today has been two brothers. Um which uh, is extraordinary because you know you could think about all the reasons why that shouldn't work, um, and it, and it's had its challenges, but that that's been an incredibly powerful partnership. But you are backing a huge amount on one stroke two people in a way you're not with public companies. So even if you've got the market size right, and even if you've got the fantastic product, you don't know whether these are the guys who can be able to execute it. And there are some. And we're not in that camp, but but I can see why. There are some VCs now who won't invest in first-time founders for that reason. They'll only invest in people who have done it before, even if they failed. Uh, that kind of bothers less than a first-time founder. It's just too big a, too big a challenge uh, to get everything right first time. And I, and I have sympathy with that. I say it's not it's not a route that we've we, we, we've taken to. But they're very very different investment skills. Very different. Uh, and I and I have to say, kind of being totally frank, uh, being a good uh, investor, um, and it might mean you've got other skills, but not doesn't necessarily equip you to do anything else afterwards. I, I mean, you, you may be kind of incisive and ask questions and be curious, but in terms of actually doing another day-to-day job, I'm not sure there there is anything that necessarily means that you'll be good at something else. And maybe that maybe that's not a surprise. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're a good investor, you tend to have longevity and you can carry on. Yeah. You can carry on investing. It's only if you're, if you have a bad patch and you're not, you don't have patient enough clients or patient enough employers that you end up having to th- figure out what else to do. And, um, I mean, I, I, I think your point is well made that 
investing doesn't really equip you for very many other things <laughs> other than it gives you it gives you ability to react to events and to and it gives you a network so um so i hadn't re- hadn't really thought about it because i ended up as you know doing a training business yeah but i didn't have any you know i didn't I, I didn't set out to do that it just happened by complete accident and it so happens it's actually it's actually good fun and obviously it's a lot less stressful than investing so you know it's uh i think you end up in in what you do sometimes just just by just by accident i tell you the other the, the other thing that uh not a massive insight but uh, as an investor you can change your mind you can do something that doesn't work you change your mind and you can change your mind very very quickly that's rarely true in other forms of business once you've committed to something it's much harder to pivot away you can do it and some of these VC firms do pivot quite a lot. But when you're running a big company or a big organization or you're kind of you know, pursuing a strategy, you don't generally have the uh, flexibility to say, oh, dear, I got that wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, politicians are a great example, right? And they make mistakes the whole time. But they never tell you. I mean, very rarely they say, I got that wrong. I'll do something else because that's seen as weakness, whereas fund management, you do it the whole time. I mean, there are very few endeavors in, in which you do have the flexibility that you have in in fund management. It's quite quite true. And you, I mean, you're doing lots of different things now. You're sitting in all sorts of committees and um, investment committees, not for profit things. I mean, how do you decide what you're going to do and what demands? I mean, you have a lot of demands in your time. Are you just doing things that you think will be fun or interesting, or things that you think you'll do good? I mean. How did you decide? Uh, well, I guess the best piece of advice I got when I when I left Lansdowne was kind of don't rush to try and fill the time or don't just take the first things that, that come your way. And so I, I've just tried to build a kind of selection of things that kind of meet, meet my interests, uh, uh, things I care a lot about, uh, which is kind of kids' education or la- lack of good education for kind of vulnerable and excluded uh, kids um, and trying to help them get back onto a, a better path. That's probably the thing I care most about uh, on the uh, non, uh, the non-profit side. Uh, uh, joined kind of academic into the board of an academic institution, the LSE, uh, uh, the National Gallery. So it has to be something, one that I, I, I have a connection with, but also where I think they are going through a really interesting change. Um, and where kind of the next five to 10 years would have been very different anyway. But what's happened with COVID and kind of the ability to do things remotely has definitely accelerated that. So it has to be something where there's a really interesting change and where the people running it kind of buy into that. Um, But but it is a very different experience. Uh, And at times, you know, it can be pretty frustrating because a lot of these organizations uh, just don't move for very good reason uh, at at the pace that uh, we're used to in the investment world, uh, both in terms of getting things done, uh, but but also, as I said, you know, well, if that doesn't work, we'll we'll do something else. That's just not how they operate. Um, And the the whole incentive structure is not designed like that. So it can be frustrating. And the best you can do is kind of keep, keep chipping away and trying to find the right levers, whether it's other trustees or other board members or people within the organization who think the same way. So there's a bit more um, 
I use the word selling, is kind of navigating around to get people to do things in a way that I think in kind of my old life, you'd get them done pretty quickly. Well, there are a few endeavors where you can be as quick as you can at a large hedge fund, but you've got a lot of resources and a lot of people who are queuing up to help you. And you, you know, you, 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 and of course you can pivot the, the money. So I, I understand that. I want to just, um, you were talking about, you know, running a quoted portfolio and it requires a lot of emotional discipline and, in venture capital, you you know you refer to the sort of high uh, attrition rate, so you get a lot of setbacks. I wonder, do you I mean do you have any sort of tips for people? I mean, how did you used to cope when you'd had you know a bad run? You'd had you know a few bad months, maybe uh, maybe a month where there's more than the four percent drawdown, or when you've had a bad run, hmm. how, how did I cope? Yeah, not very well is the answer. Um, <laughs> to be honest, so, so so we so we went for. 10 years without having anything that could be considered bad and then had the most awful 2011, uh, which I remember very well uh, to this day. Uh, having having a partner, I think, is massively helpful. Um, I, I don't mean domestic partner. I mean business partner um, because you are sharing that burden. And you know, I, I, I remember that. It was literally a, a year uh, when nothing went right and almost everything went wrong consistently. It wasn't like there was one massive. It was literally kind of like water torture. Every week, every month was awful. Um, so having a team, uh, you know, Pete and Johnny at that time, to share that with is, is massively important, to, to talk it over. Um, and uh, you kind of try and keep physically fit, which I think is very important. Uh, uh, again, I can't prove it, but I think a lot of the people in our field who uh, are at the top of the game you know mentally strong but also physically strong i think those two things uh, do go hand in hand and try and be as dispassionate as possible and uh, 2011 was a really you know bad bad year we had kind of down 20 percent at one stage we i remember sitting in a room with pete and you know clients were kind of saying yeah how can you do this da 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 this is not what we expect from you guys and we came up with a plan um you know, very well thought out plan that what we would do in terms of risk of the pro, of the portfolio as we hit different um, uh, performance drawdown numbers, but also to delever and not get rid of companies that we believed in. And that was kind of really, really important. And we told clients this. And at one stage, uh, I remember very clearly, I remember where I was sitting, we both said to each other that if the clients, that, you know, in a sense, demand that we cut which is kind of what a lot of people say is just kind of why don't you just take all the risk off the table and rebuild. If that was an overwhelming desire from the client, we would stop running the fund. Um, and that, and that wasn't kind of a, we didn't make that a public statement, but we said that to each other that we, you know, we kind of, we're in a bad hole here. We think we know the way out of it. If people want us to look in that loss, it means we've got the wrong client base. Um, and so we, we did delever. we, yeah, the, the, the rest you can kind of is known about, but that was an extremely, extremely tough time, and lots of communication between us, lots of communication between us and the clients, and and luckily it worked out fine. Uh, the next year turned out to be a very good year because we hadn't cut at the bottom, which you see so many people being forced to do. 
Yes. So tell me, I mean, you, you, you don't really have a choice of clients, or most funds don't, <laughs> but you were in a kind of unique position, weren't you? Because people were queuing up to get in the fund. So did you kind of gently encourage clients leave? I mean, I mean, I do remember one um, friend of mine who, who, when called up by an irate client, just told them to take their money away. And they were quite, they were so nonplussed. They couldn't believe it that they left their money in. Yeah, we, we I don't think, we never said it like that, but we did say at that period, well, for, well two things I'd say. Well, one is uh, that there were plenty of clients. Uh, I think this is a generic comment, but I think it's an interesting one. So everybody said when we started, the clients you really want are the uh, endowments. They're the ones that kind of, they're the long-term investors. They're the ones that will stick by you. And be careful of these fund of funds people because they're kind of first bit of bad news, they'll run out. Of course, 2008, the exact opposite happened. Uh, the endowment had liquidity crisis, so they used kind of hedge funds or any liquid, more liquid investment as a, uh, an ATM. Uh, and we, we got a lot of redemptions from them, whereas actually the fund of funds were, were very stable during that period. They didn't have the same, and they performed badly, but didn't have the same liquidity constraints uh, as, as it happens uh, that the endowments had. Um, we, we never... Yeah, we told clients what we were doing. We told them what they could expect. We told them in that very tough period how we were responding to it. Uh, uh, and we might have said kind of, if that's not to your liking, then the only thing you can do is redeem. But we, we never actively redeemed a client. There are a couple we'd like to have done because they were complete pains, but, but we never did. <laughs> Tell me um, about selling, because I think one of the things that people find really difficult, particularly private investors is knowing when to get rid of a position what, what were your rules did you have specific, specific rules when something went against you or specific no. rules when something got too big i mean how do you how do you decide when to sell what would your advice be i think it, a lot of it is temperament frankly and i, I don't think there is a, a, an answer to that because there are many funds who run very strict stop loss policies you'll know them they're kind of very short-term funds and that means they never have big drawdowns because the minute you go through something, they automatically get cut. Uh, we, we never had that. Uh, we, we just didn't suit our style. We were long-term. We were fundamental. Uh, if there was a good reason, you know, going back to my point before, we didn't want to kind of get into investor creep, but just because we, we would never let the price determine our behavior of what we did, for sure. Uh, that's when things go wrong. Uh, sometimes it's right to cut. We did that sometimes. Sometimes it's right to add more. Sometimes it's right to do nothing. Uh, or what, what, where a situation or has gone right for you, obviously long short is very different because long it becomes riskier because you have more of it as it goes up. Um, just discipline in terms of risk. Are you taking too much risk? What's yeah, the valuation uh, versus what you thought it could be? Has the company delivered? That's, that's actually not that difficult. The, the harder one is what to do with a short that's gone right because clearly it's now a lesser position in the fund. Um, and so there's this term kind of pressing the short. Do, do you sell more to get the position up, even though it's gone down? Um, and again, never had a hard and fast rule on that. But I would say it was rare that we actively pushed a short after it had gone the right way. It was rare. I, may, I don't know whether it's – we did want to look at it. I don't know if that was ever a – something that cost the fund performance uh it's just something we weren't particularly 
we just weren't we just didn't do a lot i don't know whether we were kind of worried about it you're kind of always worried that you know someone can take it over someone pay the irrational price um we did do it a few times but that was probably uh and it's a bit like the the, the the similar i guess the parallel question that we've definitely struggled with was you know, hedging whether it was options or futures after you'd been right you know when, when is it that you cut an option you, you take out option positions for protection let's say it happens it works you, you're sitting on quite a lot of in a sense profit on the option you probably lost money elsewhere because it was a hedge something has gone wrong in the world um do you run that do you increase it or do you take profit uh, and that was always a very very tricky uh, you know I don't think you can give rules in advance. For every time you've got it right, you've got it wrong another time. But but certainly it was a very, very lively debate. Uh, because basically, as I say, your maximum fear normally happens after an event. I mean, lots of stuff's been, been written about that. Uh, and I think we were pretty good at not getting carried away. Um, something I liked doing in the stock market was to take on risk when others didn't want to. So where the expected return of an investment or a series of investments was positive, but there was a meaningful chance that it would be a zero. Uh, lots of people hate those situations. They're kind of like, I don't want that on my book. I don't want to be shown something that could be a zero. I, I was always kind of keen to take the other side of that. And again, you never knew you'd be right, but if you did, did it enough times, you'd probably get a good return. So you've got to have the nerve to do that. You've got to have the nerve, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what what about shorts that went wrong? Because I've always found that was the most painful and <laughs> always the, always caused you lost sleep. Yeah. Because the short that's gone wrong is the one that you're going to lie, lie awake at night wondering what to do. Yeah, and the, the reason why it's so painful uh, is the fact that as it goes wrong, it becomes more risk for the portfolio. It's a bigger position. Whereas a long that goes, you know, if you had 10%, in a share and it halves you're only exposed now to five percent if you've got a short that goes up uh it doubles the, the inverse of halving it's now 20 percent and it's too dominant so again i think my starting point was always kind of all or our starting point was always risk management um you know what is the right level uh, forget the share price forget whether you're right forget whether or not you know the market you think is being stupid what is the maximum exposure you think you can have to any position in the fund and we actually um for a couple of the other funds uh, the risk committee at lansdowne introduced some pretty good uh, sorry pretty tight guidelines which didn't exist kind of beforehand as to what an individual short position could be for for, for those very reasons uh whether you um yeah, whether or not you're right or wrong kind of is irrelevant it's just what can be afforded by the portfolio. Because as I say, if you start with, you're trying to produce X return for clients with X or Y volatility, you don't want all that risk to sit in one place. That would be stupid. Sure. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to all this. I've got one closing question for you, if I may. I mean, do you have a, a book, a practice, or a training recommendation that you would suggest to anyone that was looking to come in to the asset management industry, looking to become a quoted investor? Other than yours, Stephen. Other than obviously. <laughs> Other than yours. Um, well, the first book I read that got me into investment was, was the uh, was something called The Education of a Poker Player. So I'm not sure whether other people would enjoy that. 
Uh, I, 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 frankly, I would try, uh, apart from reading your book inside out, I would try and get investment letters. And many of these are on the website, kind of, uh, kind of obviously the well known ones, are, you know, people like Oak Tree, uh, Grantham, um, you know, there are plenty of others. Uh, and the Lansdowne ones, not just our fund, I think some of the other funds have written extremely good letters over the years. And that kind of makes it kind of current and real. And, you know, you hear about what people are thinking about, why they're thinking about it, what the analysis is from for the people who write good letters, um, and allow you then to go and do your own work on those companies. I, I don't think I ever found you know, a particular one book. Uh, you know, I, li- I like the behavioral finance stuff that's been written, you know, in the last years. I find that interesting, but on its own, it's clearly not enough. The Buffett letters, certainly the ones of the past, I'm not so sure the most recent ones are his best ones, but, you know, going back, extraordinary, you know, good insights into markets generally uh, and what they stand for. So I, I would track, you know, some of the best investors out there and look at what they're doing, but more importantly, why they're doing it. Uh, the marathon book is very good. I think it's called Capital Account. I think I'm not quite sure the title. Yeah, it's uh, sadly, um, it's sadly out of, out of print. And I, I've actually said to them, you know, can we get uh, get you to reprint it or you know get a PDF copy? Because all my students would love to to yeah. read it. And well, I, I mean, I think that I, I'm slightly surprised that you and Pete didn't do the same thing. Get somebody like Lawrence Cunningham to go through all your past letters and produce. A book, because I think it'd be phenomenally, <laughs> phenomenally interesting. We, we were once asked, uh, uh, what was that? We were once asked whether we wanted to do a chapter on, was it Market Wizards? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, we decided not to, which was just as well, because I think it was just before the fund had that terrible time. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't think those ones aren't that interesting. They're, they're kind of a chapter is not that interesting. You're right. If you wanted to do something, you'd have to write something quite detailed, uh, you know, quite, quite, quite thoughtful if it's going to be of use to other people. Uh, but no, we, 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 well, we never did. Um, but, but, the, you know, and the, the, the latter letters that, you know, Pete wrote, uh, you know, the, the year end ones are very good, but as you know, Patrick's letters, very good. Uh, lots of people in Lansdowne write, write exceptionally well, uh, both about some of the macro, but also I think more interesting for people is, um, some of the, the the analysis of the companies and the industries and why they've chosen to do certain things. A collection of those would be really interesting. No, absolutely. Well, I'll um, I'll speak to Pete and see if I can persuade him to publish a book. And um, <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful to you. It's really generous of you to give up your time and to do this. Thank you very much, Stuart Roden. Not at all. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Stephen. This interview for me was packed full of wisdom and great advice. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot. I certainly did. And don't forget, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it on iTunes, and visit our website, behindthebalancesheet.com, where you can sign up for our free newsletter. Thanks for listening. Last year, I planned a charitable initiative to help kids become financially literate, which was going to start in the second half of this year. 
I was appalled at how my children, both at expensive central London private schools, one of them among the best schools in the country, learned almost nothing about money. They received excellent tuition on academic topics, of course, and on discrimination, gay rights, sex education, and other woke topics, but really very little about money. Now, it's not a problem for my children, as they're familiar with what I do, and we have a reward system at home, which includes financial incentives. But what about those who are less well-off? They are likely to need budgeting skills even more. They need to know how expensive it is to borrow on credit cards, the value of saving early, and much, much more. Fortunately for me, the FT decided to set up a financial literacy and inclusion charity, and I am delighted to be supporting it, both as one of the cornerstone donors and by promoting it on this podcast. To tell you more, I'm delighted to be joined by the initiator, Patrick Jenkins, the deputy editor of the Financial Times. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. What made you decide to set up the financial literacy charity? In in the original article in the FT Weekend magazine in November 2020, you talked about growing up in South Wales, your mum was a psychologist, your dad was a music teacher, but for your 16th birthday, you were given some BT shares and that sparked an interest in finance. That led you to become deputy editor of the Financial Times. But what made you want to start this charity, Patrick? Um, it's a good question. I mean, the, the route from being a 16-year-old who had some BT shares to deputy editor of the FT was a fairly long one and a circuitous one. Um, but it did certainly spark an interest in finance for me. I think my interest in um, creating this charity, uh, which we're launching uh, this September, um, was sparked both by my kind of career-long focus um, as a financial journalist and by, you know, that experience of growing up in South Wales, relatively prosperous home, but in a relatively poor area, which had been, you know, laid really low, actually, by uh, the end of coal mining, um, by um, generally a de-industrialization of the area, uh, high levels of poverty and unemployment. And also another kind of personal factor really is just having, particularly through COVID, but also through my life, seen friends and family get into financial distress, in part because they didn't know some of the basic things about how, how finance worked, how mortgages worked, how compound interest worked on debt. All of these things led to unnecessary misery. Obviously, financial literacy, understanding the basics of finance can't solve underlying uh, issues of poverty or lack of income, but they can help mitigate it and um, kind of stop the rot, if you like, in in certain cases. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a second. But just before we go into the detail about what, what you're going to tackle, just tell us a bit about where, what are the geographical boundaries of the charity? Is it mainly for kids in the UK? And if it's the UK, is there a gap in financial knowledge between London and the regions? Or do you have wider ambitions, America or anywhere? And how will you reach that audience that is outside the UK? Uh, It's a very good question. Um, We have a very ambitious uh, kind of target, um, which we are realistic about achieving um, in terms of the timescale that will take. 
in line with the profile of the FT, which has uh, a global readership, we very much want uh, the FT Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign to have a global profile over time. Um, initially, however, we are focusing on the UK. In our first year, we will focus on the UK and we will start off focusing on young people. Although uh, over time, again, um, we want to target at three particular constituencies, young people, women, and what we're calling disenfranchised communities as a kind of catch-all for various segments of society that uh, we know to be uh, less financially literate than average. Uh, The same is true of women. Um, For a multiplicity of reasons, they tend to score lower on financial literacy tests. Um, And as I say, young people, uh, where you really have the opportunity to build that kind of foundation of financial understanding early and set people up for life. So um, yeah, that's the the, the scope of our ambition. Uh, And I think we will start with UK youngsters, um, because we just want to uh, take one step at a time. Um, But the ambition is, is, is quite large over time. Fantastic. And tell me, where does this education begin and end? I mean, what's the scope of the campaign? Is it how to understand credit card interest? You you mentioned compound interest seems to be something that should be taught in every school. Is it how to get the best deal on a mobile phone, how to save for a house deposit, what a credit score means? I mean, you're not going to be trying to teach kids to speculate in the stock market using a Robin Hood app, I take it. Uh, no, that's not uh, part of the plan. Um, all of the other things you mentioned, though, uh, are part of the kind of core repertoire of, of financial knowledge that I think um, everyone should leave school with. One one of our um, ways of campaigning is going to be through um, calling for policy change. We're going to be working at a policymaker level uh, to try and improve, for example, national curriculums. Uh, so that will be, be true in England and across the UK, as well as uh, when we expand around the world, because we do feel that finance, although it's so essential for everyday living for everybody in the world, really, um, is treated as a as a fringe um, area of interest. It's, it's, it's yes in in certain national curriculums, it's it's um, it's taught, uh, but in practice, very little is uh, is imparted to young people, and it is. Um, we think there are multiple reasons for that. Partly, it's it's not seriously defined on the national curriculum in England, for example. It's also something that um, some teachers uh, are fearful of, like the the population at at large, um, if they um, don't have to teach it, if they can teach something else, uh, which is often the case uh, in terms of the UK, the English national curriculum, for example, is part of the the PSHCE uh, uh, area of teaching, which also in, involves teaching about um, civil society, about sex education, and so on. Finance gets neglected because it's hard, I suppose, because people are fearful of it, because uh, they the teachers uh, feel uncertain, perhaps, about teaching it. And so one of the things that we want to do is to help train the trainers, um, both at a school level and, uh, and across other areas of society. Um, we also, in terms of the actual material that we want to put together, 
uh, we're keen to make that as accessible and as easily uh, deliverable as possible. So we'll be working both at a content level and a distribution level with existing organizations that do good work um, and designing our programs in collaboration with on-the-ground grassroots organizations. It's funny, isn't it? Because everybody in finance has a vested interest in making it all sound much more complicated than it actually is. The only people that are interested in simplifying it are people like journalists and people like me in the in the training business. Do you think the, the vested interests are going to embrace this campaign? Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're a if if you're selling a financial product and you're skimming off high fees, you've got a vested interest in people not understanding it. There is uh, an element of that that is true. I would like to think that the financial industry is maturing uh, away from a culture where they um, try to make as much money as they can in the short term. I think in the UK context, for example, um, mis-selling scandals around multiple products for whether it be pensions or endowment mortgages or PPI um, have hopefully taught the sector a lesson um, and that there is actually good money to be made by maintaining long-term relationships with their customers. Uh, that might be a slightly dewy-eyed view. So, you know, um, we do need to make sure that part of our campaign is actually putting pressure on companies to keep things as simple as they can, uh, to be straightforward. It's, this is partly about language. It's partly about structure. Uh, and so that that is definitely part of our work, uh, what our work will be. Um, at the same time, we do feel, as you say, that there is um, a real value in our um, launching this charity to promote financial literacy, despite there being a lot actually out there already in terms of financial literacy education, in part because uh, a lot of it is supplied by those same finance companies. Now, I have no doubt that there is um, uh, very good work being done by uh, some of the big banks and other financial organizations in terms of genuinely uh, promoting financial literacy. But it has to be said, there is a commercial interest behind a lot of uh, what of those organizations are, are doing. And so, you know, one of the things that will single us out is being dispassionate and uh, with no commercial interest at all. No, absolutely. And I, I didn't mean to imply that the, that the industry didn't have good intentions. I think part of the problem particularly in the UK, particularly in the US, is that financial institutions are so tightly regulated that they're scared of expressing concepts in simple English because they feel obliged to warn people of the potential consequences of investing. So the, the regulation itself probably makes it more complicated than it needs to be, which means the task of education is even even more important. Now, Patrick, what, what is success going to look like for you? How are you going to measure the impact of the charity five and 10 years down the road? Uh, well, um, you make a very important point. This is a, uh, it's going to be a, a, a very important part of what we do is measuring uh, the impact of, of what we deliver, both at a micro level uh, and a macro level. Uh, and one of the first um, pieces of research that the FT has done actually 
in uh, uh, initial uh, article that I've written to to launch our appeal and launch of uh, of the charity more broadly is to conduct a uh, a large ambitious survey across England in this case on uh, financial literacy levels and particular issues um, that trip people up. And so um, we've kind of, um, we've got a, a kind of ground zero for, for that level of, uh, uh, of financial literacy understanding. Um, more particularly at a micro level, I think whenever we deliver a, uh, a, a piece of work, and we've done a couple of pilots already, most recently in, in a Manchester school, we will simply, um, you know, test the people that engage in our training program at the beginning and test them at the end and then follow up a few months later and test them again. Um, and, you know, the, the anecdotal, uh, results from our pilot were extremely positive that, um, there was a very marked increase in what people understood at the end of their training program, uh, compared to the beginning. And yeah, we will be going back to the, back to them before the end of the year and, uh, and following up. So that is the, the basis of our approach. Um, and, you know, we have to be making a difference. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Oh, of course. And our podcast audience, by definition, comprises listeners with an interest in finance. Tell them how they can contribute, either simply by donating or how they can offer their skills or their other resources to this great cause. Um, well, um, as you mentioned, we've been kind of preparing this uh, charity for launch uh, for the past nine months or so. We first talked about it in the FT last November, uh, November 2020. Um, since then, we've invited people to register their interest, uh, either uh, expressing a, a desire to donate money or to support us in other ways, uh, and to email us uh, here at the FT uh, via an email address, financial.literacy at ft.com. That will continue to be uh, an email address that will be used for communication. Uh, from September the 4th, the uh, FT Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, FT Flick, will have a live uh, website. It's not as we speak, uh, quite live, but it will be uh, by September the 4th for our launch. Um, and also through the FT website, there will be a clear kind of signposting towards the charity uh, alongside all the pieces that we're going to be publishing through September, October, November and December of, uh, of this year uh, to write about various aspects of financial literacy. Uh, and so uh, anyone who is interested in engaging with us in, in any way um, can uh, follow those links and uh, we would love to hear from them. Fantastic. Well, this interview won't be going out until September the 16th, 2021 for the first time. And it's going to be repeated in this podcast. I'm incredibly pleased to be offering a little bit of help. I think it's a great cause. I think in many ways, we've got a following wind because in a sense, as I can't remember who it was that said, it, I think it might have been Naval, everyone is an investor now. We've had Robin Hood. That There's a real benefit from the money that people have made riding the MEM stocks. We might think it's a bit daft, but it's creating an interest in finance. And the same thing's true with crypto. Kids making money in Bitcoin, that's creating an interest in finance. So let's hope that this following wind gives the charity a real boost and 
hopefully the listeners to this podcast will be a big support. Patrick, thank you enormously for coming on the podcast and, and telling us all about it. Well, thank you very much for your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Clapham, and that was the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you use. And don't forget to sign up on our website, behindthebalancesheet.com, to get our newsletter and access to our club, where we post free training, podcast commentary, and much more. Thanks for joining us.